No, you tell it. No, you. I'm not telling it. You should totally tell it. <laughs> well, you should tell it. No, you tell it. No, You Tell It is a series that switches up the storytelling. So each performer writes a true life tale and then, switching with a partner, performs the other person's story, giving everyone involved the chance to share their own stories and experience someone else's. After a devastating loss, an heiress comes to terms with the one thing that money cannot buy. First up, Leslie Malika Lewis asks the big questions in A Broader View, read for us here by Elisa DiCarlo. A broader view. Migration. Noun. Seasonal movement of animals from one region to another. Movement of people to a new area in order to find work or better living conditions. Movement from one thing to another. Note, some paranormal activity ahead. One morning in November 1991, when I was 18 and a freshman at Harvard, I was dreaming of the view of the sunrise from my summer bedroom when my roommate woke me up to hand me the telephone. It was my father calling from our home in Paris to tell me that our summer house, Broadview, the home with the bedroom I'd been dreaming of, had caught fire. I made my way out to Amagansett somehow. I don't remember how. It's quite a hike to get out there, yet thinking back, all I remember was getting the call and then being on the property smelling the smoke. My father had flown in from Paris. We watched as the firemen picked through the ashes and debris of this giant house reduced to charred beams, twisted metal, and broken glass. We saw them use a wrecking ball on the three chimneys to take them down so they wouldn't fall on the workers. Each time the ball hit the brick, it pummeled my heart. I hid in the car and cried. It was the worst thing that had ever happened to me thus far in my life. It was devastating. Soon after the fire, after my father returned to Paris, My mother's mother, my Lola, died. I wasn't very close to her, but I loved her. And since there's never two without three, within about a week of the fire, I began having premonitions of my father's early death. I didn't call them premonitions. If I called them anything, I would have called them irrational fears. My father was in the prime of his life, only 49 years old. And although he saw himself as overweight, he carried it well. And although I considered him a hypochondriac because I thought he was always complaining of some ailment or another, bottom line, I believed he was exceptionally healthy. So, there was no reason to think he might die early. Except I had this recurring sense he would. I told this to my boyfriend at the time. He doesn't remember me telling him, but I do. It was the first and only time I said it out loud. I'm afraid my father is going to die. If I hadn't said said it to him, I could have dismissed it to myself. But saying it out loud made it real. Premonition. Noun. A strong feeling that something is about to happen, especially something unpleasant. Synonyms. Foreboding. Presentiment. Intuition. Hunch. Suspicion, feeling in one's bones. I later found out that after the fire, my father started to have his own intuitions. Following those inner prompts, he put me on the board of his company, an 18-year-old female college student attending meetings in New York City and Paris with seasoned businessmen. 
It was intense at the time, but now I feel lucky I got to experience him in action at the helm of the company he built from nothing. Who was my father, you might ask? When he was in grade school, living in segregated Baltimore, the child of a young single mom, he decided that he wanted to be the richest black man in America. By the time he was 49, he had done just that. Through two leveraged buyouts of two companies, the McCall Pattern Company and then TLC Beatrice International Foods. His name was Reginald F. Lewis, and I am his elder daughter. That summer, since there was nothing but rubble at the other property, my mother found us a rental home on the ocean in East Hampton. We migrated there for the season while they decided whether to rebuild an Amagansett or try for a home on the ocean. Lily Pond Lane, which was where my father actually wanted to own, he had big plans for himself. He always wanted the best address and filed this under good luck, bad luck, who knows. The fire was giving our family the opportunity to upgrade in this way. He did the same thing for our residents in New York City. The townhouse, or brownstone as we call it, in Chelsea was lovely, but he wanted Fifth Avenue. That summer, my father bought a pre-war co-op across from the Central Park Zoo. Meanwhile, meanwhile, on the beach and on weekends, I remember trying to glean all the information from him I could so that I might know what to do with his company if, when, he died. There was an unspoken conversation between us. I remember one time sitting with him in the sunny living room of the rental home, wanting to say something like, I'm scared you're going to die, but not knowing how. I remember feeling him wanting to say something and not knowing how. There was just no way to say it. So we just sat next to each other, quiet. That fall, I headed back to college and threw myself into my studies. Other than the job of running his business, my father focused on the Fifth Avenue apartment, launching a complete overhaul. He had hired one of the most famed interior designers in New York, J.P. Molyneux, and had given him an impossible timeline to finish the apartment three months. Yet Molyneux delivered a five-bedroom, two-story apartment direct decorated lavishly. The library paneling was imported from England, the entryway marble floors from Italy, the fabrics from France, and the most salient element that haunted the halls, sudden illness, homegrown in the U.S. of A. A gorgeous sunset could be viewed from the living room and master bedroom most nights, with the sun glinting from behind Central Park West. Buildings like the San Remo and the Dakota, where John Lennon had lived and died. I remember coming to the new apartment for the first time, home from college for my father's birthday, December 7th, 1992. As I entered from the private mahogany elevator into the palatial foyer, I saw the back of what I could tell was a beautiful young woman as she crossed my path. She had dark curly hair and a trim figure, wearing a fitted red sweater and black slacks. A new assistant to my father, I thought? No, it was my 12, almost 13-year-old sister who had gotten a new haircut and grown into a young woman in the three months since I'd seen her last summer. And I remember getting angry at her when she moved to assist my father with his walking. He doesn't need that, I snapped at her. But I was wrong. He did. He'd been diagnosed with a tumor in his brain a month earlier. He was weak. He had lost weight. He was dying. 
The apartment was ready for us to move in. My father's dream of living on Fifth Avenue had come true. Occasionally we found places where the workers had cut corners, like the toilet paper holder roughly and unevenly fastened into the interior of the cabinet, so it looked good from the outside, but sloppy on the inside. My mother and sister moved back from Paris, and my sister started middle school in New York mid-year. The last time I saw my father alive, he told me, don't use this as an excuse. At the time, the film The Bodyguard was popular, and the song I Will Always Love You was the soundtrack to his illness. After the new year, I went back to school for finals. I wasn't there at the hospital the day he died. It was Tuesday, January 19th. 1997, and I had an exam the next morning. No excuses. I don't remember who told me he had died. I don't think my mother called me at school to tell me. I don't know. The next month, I turned 20, and for my birthday, I came back to New York for the weekend. My mother took the occasion as an opportunity for us to go to the lawyer's offices to read his will. Dad had chosen her and me to be the co-executrixes of his estate. And there was something else. Don Moore gave us a handwritten note from my father dated the week before Broadview burned down. Dad had written the letter and given a copy to his Aunt Beverly and the other to his estate lawyer, Don. My father had instructed them to give it to us if he died early. Although I planned to live into my 90s, if something should happen to me, Loida, my mother, should join the board of the company and in a timely manner sell off the assets. And as I mentioned before, soon after the date of the letter, rather than my mother, he put me on the board of his company. I think he wanted me to see him in action. So, he knew. We knew. We knew he would die at 50. How did we know? I went back to school and kept my head down and graduated on time as expected. Good for me. After graduation, I spent the fall living in that apartment, working at Barnes & Noble and reading books on death and near-death experiences. I just couldn't understand what had happened to me. I had so many questions. Where did he go? Why did he die? Will I ever be happy again? Am I even allowed to be happy with this massive tragedy? What the flock is the point of all this money if it couldn't buy him another day of life? And of course, how did I know that he was going to die? How could I have known? While reading the book Embraced by the Light by Betty J. Eady, I had my first clairaudience experience. Clairaudience. The faculty or power of hearing something not present to the ear, but regarded as having objective reality. And now, we enter the woo-woo. <laughs> I was lying in my bed late at night in November 1995, reading that book. The story, Betty was declared dead on the operating table while having surgery, and yet came back to life and shared her story of seeing a tunnel, seeing light at the end of the tunnel, and then being embraced by that light. She says she was filled with a love that was stronger than anything she had ever felt before on earth. There was a moment when, alone, reading her story, I suddenly felt a warm and loving presence next to me, on my right, as if a friend were kneeling beside, by my bedside. And I heard, in my right ear, 
you will never be alone. It was as if somebody I loved and cared about was giving me reassurance. Not my father, though, more like a kind friend who saw me going through a hard time and wanted me to feel better. I started weeping and said, but I feel so alone, what do you mean? And that was it. Until that moment, I didn't believe in God. I'd been raised half-heartedly Catholic, baptized, and kind of confirmed in the religion. But these two experiences, first of knowing my father would die, and second, hearing a loving voice when there was no one in the room with me, launched me on a search for meaning that continues to this day. Writing this piece is a part of that search. And now, 22 years after that voice whispered in my ear, I feel like I have answers to those questions that make sense to me. Will I be happy again? Yes. Should I be? Also, yes. But why did he die? Why does anyone die? It's a plot twist, certainly. <laughs> but what is all this money for if you can't stave off death? Good question. My ideas around money had to evolve. Money is useful, but only up to a point. I had to make peace with money and death. My dad had a great relationship with the creation of money and a less than great relationship with his physical body. Intense things can happen with intense people. I often thank his spirit and God and my mother for giving me the money to pay for the therapy and woo-woo new age workshops that helped me sort out my thoughts on this stuff. His death marked the start of my awakening. And thus, I have migrated away from the skepticism of my youth as a disaffected Paris slash New York team toward the faith that there is more to this world than meets the eye. Love is real, even if we can't see it or explain it. And I will never be alone. What are the things we truly need in life? The things that we aren't willing to leave behind? For Elisa DiCarlo, it's a basket full of cats. Switching it up, here's Elisa's true life tale, performed by Leslie Malika Lewis. 2 a.m., Heathrow Airport, London, 1980. I disembarked the United Airlines flight from New York. After a disastrous visit home to my family, I'd traveled over 24 hours to get back to my London flat. I waited in line and handed over my passport to the official. She was, a crisp skirt. she was in a crisp skirted uniform, fresh despite the late hour. The terminal was brightly lit. It hurt my eyes. I was on one side of the turnstile, the immigration officer on the other. There weren't many other people at this hour. It shouldn't take long. Security was much looser in those days. I wasn't prepared for the border guards. You're not allowed in the country. You've been ordered out. Come on, it's two in the morning. I want to go home. <laughs> You're not officially in, London, in England yet. We could put you on a plane back to New York right now. My passport was stamped with the official order that I was being thrown out of England. I had appealed. During the appeal, I'd been told that I could come and go as I pleased. So I went home for Christmas for the first time in several years which had been a catastrophic mistake in so many ways. I've appealed the order. I have the papers. I produced the letter from the home office. Please, 
Can I go back to my flat? I've been traveling for hours. No. <laughs> I waited under the harsh airport lights. When the officer came back, she told me I was to report back to Heathrow the following day at 10 a.m. and to took my passport. Exhausted, my head spinning, I returned to my flat and discovered my flatmate, Dennis, in my bed with a woman. I fell out on the couch. Damn it, caught. My father was expecting me to return to America for good, but I had decided to disappear again. You see, my father was a college president. I grew up on the campus. He and my mother fully expected me to attend that college. I didn't see independence as moving across the street. In fact, I didn't want to go to college at all. Thank God, the head of the college drama department remarked, have you considered going to drama school in London? Yes, not just leaving home, but leaving the country. I was an Anglophile. I worshipped British comedy. Monty Python, Peter Cook, and Spike Milligan were my comic idols. In fact, tall, handsome Peter Cook was the only man I would consider to father my child. <laughs> but, as it turned out, at 16, I was too young to audition for all of the big schools, but a tiny school, the Dion School of Drama, accepted me. It was a terrible school, <laughs> run by two crazy old ladies. I dropped out after one term. Now what? I didn't want to go back to America and my parents, but I only had a student visa. So I disappeared. First, I moved out of my current bedsitter in Kew Gardens to another in a different part of town. Then again, to the then crime-ridden, dangerous neighborhood of Islington. I found a two-story flat at the top of a building that was about to collapse. The, the stair railing fell out of the wall within weeks of my moving in. I reported my landlady for fraud and overcharging rent in a dilapidated apartment. I lived there until I got caught several years later. During that time, my flatmate, Dennis, moved in. He was a pothead with sallow skin that had never seen the sun, buck teeth, and a frizzy yellow afro. He sold pot and hash to the American expat community. Dennis was a member of the Wake and Bake School, gently blowing pot smoke into his friends' faces to get them up. He was friends with a Danish couple who sold the most potent hashish I have ever smoked. Once, after smoking, I stood in one place for six hours and had no idea I was doing so. <laughs> Once he found out I was still a virgin, he waged a campaign to be my first. It was simply wrong in the eyes of the universe that I still hadn't fucked anyone. But his insistence on washing his sore-covered dick in the, the sink while I took, my ba took a bath made it easy to say no. As part of my liberation, he took photos of me on the toilet, in bed, in the bath. Being an unattractive 250-pound woman, I hadn't had many offers, but somehow I was able to turn him down. I had no idea why he had sores all over his dick. In hindsight, he probably gave genital herpes to most of the female American expats in London. As for myself, I scraped by with crappy jobs like typing academic papers and amused myself with petty crime. Yes. <laughs> My favorite thing was to break into people's houses while they were away. Because very little crime happened in the better neighborhoods, London house doors were usually closed with just a thin hook and eye clasp. Throwing myself hard against the door usually burst it open. Or I went around back, 
put my jacket around my hand, and broke a window. Once in, I went exploring, looking in closets, opening and closing drawers. That's as specific as I'm going to get. Statute of limitations is in England. My dream was to have a comedy career, like Monty Python or something. What it was, I didn't know. I met up with another druggie, a comedy writer, and we cobbled together an act. A god-awful act. Many times I was told to get off by the audience. One night in an East London pub, I spent an entire, the, entire, the entire evening talking to a pub owner who'd had half his face burnt, nearly burned off. He agreed to have me appear that weekend. But when I turned up, the pub was closed. Nobody there. I was determined to keep going, but the immigration office found me and ordered me out of the country again. I went back to drama school to get a student visa. This time I was old enough, but the schools I auditioned for all turned me down because of my weight. As the letter from the Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts put it, your severe overweight makes it clear you're not serious about a career as an actress. The prestigious drama school accepted me on condition I lose 20 pounds a term. The first months went well, but I became psychotic, hallucinating, and not knowing if I knew people from real life or TV. In those days, the English didn't know from psychiatrists and medications and didn't tolerate my showing up late and disoriented for classes. I dropped out. My student visa was revoked, and I was ordered out of the country again. I appealed and was told I could go back to America and return while my appeal was pending. I hadn't seen my family since I first left America, so I decided to go home for Christmas. So I went back home, my appeal pending. I was delighted to show my family back in America that I had lost some weight. I lied fluently about being in school, telling funny stories about first-year student plays. They didn't notice I was psychotic, but then they had never noticed before, no matter how floridly stoned I was. But then my father called me into his office. What do you have to say about this? He handed me a letter on blue airmail stationery from my landlady. Dear Mr. DiCarlo, I'm writing to tell you that your daughter Elisa left her school some months ago. Since then, she's been occupying my flat, working some kinds of odd jobs. Her flatmate is a drug dealer. <laughs> Sincerely, Melisande Woodbury Jones. <laughs> it was revenge. Pure and simple. My father's eyes were cold blue steel. You are coming home. Oh, God. Coming home. I couldn't do it. Returning in disgrace, staying with my parents, whom I couldn't stand. After I dropped out of the first drama school, I wrote to my father about wanting to start a comedy career. He told me to stop these fantasies and get my ass back to America. To me, America meant New York. New York meant my parents, so I couldn't go back to America. It didn't occur to me that I might go to California, Vermont, or even Ohio. I agreed to come home, but I had no intention of doing so. I disappeared before. It could be done again once I got back. So the morning after I returned from America, the morning after the immigration officer took my passport, I went into a small windowless room where two officials held out an entire dossier on me. I went... I, at age 20, I had already amassed quite a bit of data. <laughs> Ads in a local paper for my comedy act, medical papers, drama school applications, orders to leave the country, including the most recent one. Your flatmate, Dennis Redford, is selling drugs, and we know you are selling drugs as well. I'm not 
selling drugs, taking drugs. Probably not the best thing to point out. <laughs> you are being flown back to New York a week from today. If you're not on that plane, we'll know it. The two officers escorted me to the United Airlines ticket desk and watched as I bought a ticket for the following Tuesday. Dallas, Dennis, I'm selling everything. I'm being deported. I announced when I walked back into my flat. I wasn't sorry to be leaving Dennis. I started packing. I started packing when I remembered my cats. Oh my God, my cats! Peaches and Demented! Demented's original name was Zoe, but she was prone to seizures from overexcitement, so we began calling her Demented Little Zoe, and somehow it was shortened to Demented. She was a beautiful tortoise shell, and I loved her more than anything. My other cat, Peaches, was a true English marmalade cat. I knew Dad would say, absolutely not, if I told him I was bringing home two cats. Screw him. I wasn't leaving my cats. With most of my belongings either shipped or left behind, I returned to Heathrow Airport with my cats in a wicker basket fastened with leather straps. They were to go in the special baggage. I got good and drunk on the way home, <laughs> on the flight home. My father and younger brother met me at JFK. When we got to baggage claim, I confessed to my father that I had brought my cats back to America. To my horror, they weren't in the special baggage claim. I burst into tears. Peaches and Demented were somewhere lost back at Heathrow Airport. My cats were gone. Or they were in the baggage hold, dead from cold and lack of oxygen. My father kept saying we had to go home. It was too goddamn late. Why did I care about the goddamn cats? I refused to budge until the baggage hold was completely empty. My cats! My beautiful cats are alive! I had to return to my childhood bedroom. Movie posters peeling off the walls, ugly ceramic figures I bought when I was a child, my books. But I had my basket of cats. My reminders of London. And... Independence. That's it. Thanks for joining us for this installment of No, You Tell It. Visit us on the web at knowyoutellit.com.